No prayers, um, except for Melody. Yes, Kay. Your daughter, she's in our prayers, Kay. It's just still the same thing. She she still can't get rid of cancer in her bone marrow. So the doctor is going to change it to a different chemo drug. But she's still not being able to get rid of it. She needs to go to the next stage, which is a bone marrow transplant. But can't do it because she's still her bone marrow is still cancerous. God. Okay, she's she's been in our prayers for weeks now, and she, she's been in the hospital for like two months now. Yeah, yeah, we've been praying for her, and we will continue to pray for her. Kay. Um, yes. Thank you. Um. And just so you don't take all the flack, Melody, the the guy in the middle of our screen, Michael. Gender, and you, you all remember this guy, yes? <laughs> God, oh, I, I'm praying for all of you to, um, to spare me. What else can I say? Come on, let's start. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, um, where's the readings? Conduct. I know yesterday just um, the readings yesterday were about the legal scholar who approached Christ and wanted to know what he had to do to um, attain heaven and Christ um, told him to obey God's commandments I want to underscore that if I can for a minute here because you, you know that it's not a small thing for me, particularly in our world, in our American, largely Protestant world, that so often we tend to uh, disconnect or dissociate charity from law or justice. Um, the commandments came from the Son's Father, the Trinity, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, not Christ, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, when the Son took on our human nature and became Christ, can anybody imagine him defying the Father or not fulfilling his commandments? There's nothing Christ did in disobedience of his Father. Everything he did. In one of John's letters, John says, it's only in obeying the commandments that we come to love the way we do. We have to obey them. So obedience is asked for us, from us, of us. How, how do we love if we don't obey? Um, that takes a lot of humility. I think it also takes a lot of courage because we can so easily go along with our world and feel like we're doing okay because we're, we're working within the world's terms um, but not God's. Um, so um, Christ gave him the parable of the Good Samaritan you know, it was the Samaritan who, who, who saved the Jewish person, not all the other Jews. And Christ asked the man, who is the good neighbor? And it was the good Samaritan. And Christ said, then go and be a good neighbor yourself. So Christ was asking him to, to be neighborly in the sense of watching out for your neighbor and being a good neighbor yourself. And that meant showing mercy 
where it's not easy because remember the Jews and Samaritans didn't like each other a lot um, I just want to recall everybody to that that we're asked to be just we are asked mercy does not mean accommodating or being passive or enabling a sin we are asked to be just we're asked to address sins but we're also asked to love the sinner 70 times 7 7 I mean forever so our call is to bring justice to the world but to do it in a spirit of love and mercy that's not easy because there's no way to do that without putting ourselves away um, Hamlet's faced with the same kind of problem I, I'll, I'll see if I can't flush that out some as we go through the play but here at the outset um, that's what you ask of us Lord to bring a mercy where it's hard for people we don't like um, where we've been wounded where people have hurt us um, and our natural response is to get back strengthen us please um, to be with you to bring a justice to the world work for it take it seriously but to work to realize that justice um, in a spirit of love of self-denial putting ourselves away to be with you um, help us all to do that please um, I ask um, for a special grace for Melody and her family her children her son um, and for her um, she carries these in her heart um, it's um, one of the gifts of the cross from you to her I hope she knows that that it's a, um, a gift of a cross um, you allow these trials to go on this was the great truth of Boethius so that we can get better so that we test ourselves and find out where we're lacking so help all of us to see to find in the trials that we face graces not just see them as you know the way the world does these are these awful sufferings we wish we didn't have because I think all of us would <laughs> would like anything but to be on a cross with Christ um, so be with Melody and her family her children her son um, and her um, in all that she's carrying and we ask a special grace on David and Kay and their daughter um, the trials lengthening for her can't be easy the pain is being drawn out um, let this trial bring her to a stronger faith that's what all the martyrs did when they faced death that they got better and better and better and better help help their daughter to grow in faith in this trial and wherever there are weaknesses let our prayers and particularly Kay's and David's prayers be helped her that's our faith in purgatory that we're praying for people who don't even know us and we don't even know um, believing that you will hear our prayers they make a difference it's the mystical body we are all tied together one well, this is personal for a second sorry one of the reasons I love Easter because it brings the mystical body home to me that we're all we're all in Easter doing penance climbing up purgatory so we're together with people we don't even know we're praying for them they're praying for us our great faith is that um, 
the prayers of people that we don't even know can help us. That's a humbling, that's a humbling aspect of our faith. So wherever their daughter is experiencing weakness, let their own prayers help to sustain her, um, to bring her to what they've been given, the two of them. We offer these prayers um, in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, quick, quick review. Quick, very, very quick review. Last week, I reminded you of the, of the lines from Christ where he said, be as gentle as the dove, as wise as the serpent. Christ was telling us to be on guard. And I don't think he was just telling us to be on guard against the enemy outside of ourselves. I think he was saying be on guard against yourself because sometimes we are our own worst enemies. He was very clear about that. Um, he said, um, if our hand gets in the way, cut it off. If our foot gets in the way, cut it off. If our eye gets in the way, pluck it out. He's saying, get rid of those things in us that may lead us to hell. I mean, I can't be any more frank than I am in that. All of us are in danger of damnation. Um, he's, he's very clear those, in those words. They're dark and threatening, but they're real. He says, pluck them out. It would be better to go into Gehenna um, lame, or no, sorry, be able to go into heaven lame than to go into heaven or hell with all of our faculties intact. And it's interesting that he uses a hand and a foot and an eye. The hand is instrumental, it helps us do what we want to do. Our, our feet get us someplace, and our eyes are, you know, the, the sense by which we learn to know things. So he's covering everything. He says, take a look at yourself. Um, get rid of these things, whatever their aspect, in our eye, our foot, our hand, whether we're traveling, getting somewhere, wanting something, seeing something, knowing something, it doesn't matter. The human person is a complicated thing. We can, we can go corrupt in so many different ways, so get rid of them. So know your enemy and yourself. And I'm saying that now because it seems to me one of the things that's going on in Hamlet is Hamlet is surrounded by enemies. And I'm saying that very, very seriously. His mother, the woman he loves, Ophelia, betrays him without, without even knowing it. That's what makes it so sad. She and Ophelia, um, it's going to be one of the major things. We touched on it last week. We'll come to it again. I'll, I'll come to it because it's a major thing. There's nobody you can trust. Horatio's the one person. He's a man of honor. And he and Horatio will be together at the end. So remember, Christ said, watch and pray. Be as wise, gentle as the dove, wise as a serpent. We are called to deal with evil in the world. To not let this bourgeois world that we live in, with its comfort and security, because those are the great ideals of the bourgeois world, comfort and security. Not let comfort and security put us to sleep, because if we do, we stagnate. We die there. That's where we <laughs> go to hell. Um, last week, I also reminded everybody, remember that literature, it's an old thing, but it's good to be reminded. Literature gives us a special way of knowing. It's not conceptual until we reflect on it. In literature, we return to the world and we participate in somebody's life as it's experienced. It's like somebody entering our life in our marriages, our families, and taking 
part in them. It's a different way of knowing. And I thought, Kate's, where's Kay? I don't want to lose you, Kay and David. Um, I thought Kay's remark last week was so profound. She said, literature doesn't explain itself. She was absolutely right on. We are still here. I, I know. I saw your... Um, she said, literature doesn't explain itself. Um, the problem with critics today is they take a theory outside of literature and bring it to explain literature when very often it's not. We have to learn literature to learn to read literature as literature. And there's no way to do that without looking at the whole thing and seeing how that whole colors a part. And that's impossible to do the first time around because the first time around you don't know the whole. You're just taking part by part. Um, the first time I read Hamlet, there's no way I could have understood Hamlet the way I understand him now. I can bring a whole to him because I've seen the whole. I've slept with it. I've wrestled with it in my life. Um, in literature, we're allowed to return to the world participate in the lives of other, make them one with our own lives. We experience their tragedies, their joys. We can learn from them and hopefully if we do, we can take them into our own lives and live them. Literature is a little bit like therapy, except there's no therapist there to say what therapists do. Hamlet's going through problems. I'll get to them in one second. One last reminder before we begin to look at the play itself. Remember the truth of Boethius, because this has been major for everything we've done. The great truth in Boethius is God is always at work. There is no bad fortune. None. Um, whether somebody's dying from pneumonia or whatever the difficulty is. God is always at work. Does that mean people won't go to hell? No, that is not what it means. But what it does mean is God is always at work bringing good out of evil. The question is, do we work with him? Do we see him? Right? That was his great truth. He took on predestination, free will. Why does God allow evil men to prosper and good men to suffer? He handled every, every major important question dealing with our faith. And what he proved philosophically, not as a matter of faith, as a matter of reason, what he proved was God is always at work bringing good out of evil. The question is, do we work with him? Do we see him? Now that goes directly to one of my questions to you all last week. And I'll carry it over. Next week will be our last week on Hamlet. And I'll get to it in one more second. Two serious questions. The second one goes to what I've just saying, but I'll come to it in a sec. First question is this. Um, first question that I asked last week is, in what way is Denmark an image of America? In what way is it like America? Or in what way is America like Denmark? In Hamlet, Denmark is called, it's um, one of the characters says, Something, I think it's Hamlet's, something's rotten in the state of Denmark. Something's rotten in the state of Denmark. Denmark is called a prison house, a prison. It's called a prison. And it's called an unweeded garden. 
In what ways is America rotten? What's there's something rotten in Denmark. In what way is America corrupting? In what way is it a prison? In what way is it an unweeded garden? I'm trying I'm asking everybody to look at Hamlet and see if there's any relevance to in that play to our world. I, I happen to think there, particularly because this is Protestant America, and you know from the last two weeks, Shakespeare's dealing with a Protestant problem. Fundamentally a Protestant and it's actually it's fundamentally Catholic because it goes to our faith. The second question, first one, in what way is America or Denmark like America? Second. Hamlet takes his quest from his father absolutely seriously. His father says, avenge my death, avenge my death. His brother treacherously killed him, yeah? Put poison in his ear and killed him and took over the throne and married his wife. And you know that the play opens on a dark note because Hamlet loved his father. He, I'm gonna read one of his speeches today that we didn't read last week, where he has nothing but admiration he does nothing but express an admiration for his father. And the fact that his mother would have married so soon after his father's death is a source of just real spiritual anguish uh, for him. Hamlet takes his quest seriously. His father says, avenge my death. But we know from the play that his father belongs to an old heroic code. It's the Achillean, the Achillean, the code of Achilles the honor code of, of men at war, warriors. Remember that one, what we know about the father is that he and the king of Norway went to battle over lands and that Hamlet killed him. So those lands were bequeathed to his son. Um, so he was a noble man, um, an, an honorable man. Hamlet will speak of in that way. The father says, avenge my death. Hamlet's a Christian He's going to Wittenberg, which is a Catholic university. And we've gone over this, and I've stressed it a lot because it's fundamental to the play. Wittenberg is the, is the university which Luther taught. It was the gates of Wittenberg that Luther hung up his theses. We know that Hamlet was an actual historical figure, 9th or 11th century, I can't remember. Wittenberg was not founded until 1503, 1505. Luther hung up his theses, sorry, I'm getting, I still haven't looked up the dates. I think he hung up his theses in 1509 or 1515, maybe in 1515. Um, Hamlet's at Wittenberg. Why did Shakespeare choose that? If you know Shakespeare, it's because he's trying to deal with something in a profound way. Because it's through Luther that the Reformation enters the Christian world. Okay? Now we know that God says, vengeance is mine. Vengeance is mine. The father says, avenge my death. You can't let Claudius off the hook. He killed, he killed a king. Hamlet's an honorable man, but he's also Christian. What does he do? What does he do? Everything that is given to him comes to him through a private revelation. He's just come from Wittenberg, and the, the fundamental principle at the core of Luther's thought, this just shows what a genius Shakespeare is. The fundamental issue 
for him as a Reformation thinker was to do away with a sacerdotal class, priests, because the most important thing for Luther was the intimate, the private relationship between an individual and God. Not the sacerdotal observances. He did away with them. And you also know he changed this, he did away with some of the sacraments and he changed the Eucharist. So it's through Luther that these new doctrines enter Christianity. Okay? So Hamlet comes from Wittenberg. The first thing that he experiences when he gets home is the marriage of his mother with his uncle and a private revelation. And we talked about that. What is he to do? And I thought Heather's way of describing it, I thought was really bright. Um, you want to take a second and recall it, Heather? I thought the way you described it was really good. What's what's the trouble with a private revelation? What's the problem? I think your your speaker's off. Your yes. Um, I'm trying to remember what I said. <laughs> <laughs> um, My mind can go because I'm old. Yours can't. I've got six kids, is that excuse? No, it is not. You're too young. <laughs> um, Melody's shaking her head, and so is Anne. They're, uh, what do you do with these enabling women? What do you do? No, no. No, I think I think I said something about how... Um, oh, I don't remember. Oh, dear. Let me take it up. I, okay. You, you were Sorry. saying... You, no, I'm... I'm not going to get it right. I'm sorry because I'm not going to. I thought all that you said was so right on. You were saying that you um, you don't know who to believe anymore. I mean, you don't know what to believe, and it just creates this unstable condition. What can you what can you believe? Because some people may be fanatics, some not. Some may have had an actual religious experience, some not. There's no way in the natural world we can make a judgment about them. It's beyond. It's beyond the realm of reason. All it will do is create confusion. Those are that was the gist of it. I'm glad if yeah. you want to add anything more. The, the difference between Protestantism and Catholic Catholicism being, you know, if it's a private revelation, there is no there's no authority to stand up and judge that revelation right. as hewing to the truth of God or not. Right, right. Yeah, and I came in and said that I thought your words was one of, were one of the best defenses I heard of the magisterium, the reason for it, um, that the magisterium exists in order to protect against just this, because if people are left in their private, private revelations, there's no way they can connect with each other. We have no way of testing them or making judgments about them, um, because it's beyond the pale of reason. Um, and every everybody can be left in their subjective worlds, making whatever claims they make but we have no basis on which to come together objectively. And the, one, of the, one of the things the Magisterium predicts is the, ob, the objectivity of Christ. He's real as a person, the transubstantiation, he's God and man. I mean, that's fundamental to what they're protecting. Um, so here was the question that I asked, the second question. First was, is there a some resemblance between Denmark and America the second is um, God works to bring good out of evil 
Hamlet's giving a quest to avenge his father. Um, the father belongs to an old heroic code. Hamlet's a Christian. He belongs to Wittenberg. He's had an education in a Catholic university. He's had a private revelation, but he's Catholic. I mean, I, I don't want to go through all the passages that show he's Catholic, but um, is what he does at the end done in the same spirit in which he received the quest in the beginning? So is, is the Father's honor code simply carried on and passed on intact that Hamlet avenges his father and carries on that honor, that old pagan honor code? You know, the Achillean, the Achilles? Yes. yes. I don't want to answer. No, no, wait, wait. I don't want to answer it. Sorry, sorry Chuck. I don't want to answer it because it, it's, it's going to wait till next week. But that's the, that was the major question I wanted everybody to think about. Does anything happen to change the spirit in which Hamlet completes that quest? Can we point to anything and say God was at work? Because this goes directly to our faith. Here's the problem of our faith. I mean, that's one of the reasons I'm so looking forward to doing Hamlet with you guys. Faith belongs to a supernatural order. It's above the order of reason. Right? Faith and charity are gifts from God. They're supernatural gifts. I've said this to you more than a few times. Faith, um, faith, hope, and reason are things that are beyond the pale of reason. Um, a hope... Faith, hope, and charity. Faith, hope, and charity, sorry. Um, how to put this? We're asked to love without reason. Um, um, we're asked to love when we no longer have a reason for loving, or it's not love. I want to be absolutely, I mean, this is going to be hard things for people to hear, particularly in our world. We're asked to have faith when we no longer have a reason for having faith, because it's above the order of reason. We're asked to hope when we no longer have a reason for hoping, because that's what hope is. Every one of those virtues elevates us above the natural world. Yeah? I mean, I hope everybody's clear on that, because that's fun. That's, first, that's kindergarten catechism. <laughs> We're asked to love when we have no reason to love. And same with faith and hope. When we say, I hope I get a bike for Christmas, what all we're doing is showing is that we've temporalized the supernatural virtue. We brought it down and made it an earthly thing. I hope I get a bike for Christmas. And I hope my, I hope, my hope is fulfilled. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> Imagine me and my family going around to our grandchildren when they're... Uh, have a good laugh. Oh, God, with this... Um, sorry, I've lost the screen, the picture. Um, can you all see me? Yes. Okay. I my screen just went blank. I don't know what's going on. Um, so faith presents us with a problem because to act on the basis of a faith can put us at odds with the natural order. That's why we have the magisterium. Right? Now the problem, and, and that problem is exasperated by the Lutheran world, the Protestant world, 
because it elevates faith and makes faith sola fidea, the basis of its religion. Now imagine if, if Hamlet were to act on the basis of what he received from his father. He kills his uncle. He's committing an act of regicide, right? It's, the, it's one of the worst political crimes you can commit. And he says to everybody, but my, my father, the ghost of my father told me so. What's the response of people going to be? Yeah, right. Right, good, okay. There's no, go ahead, Kay. Um, in reading Hamlet, I have this unsettling feeling. I'm trying to balance the Christ's teaching of forgiveness. He said, when somebody asked, if somebody did wrongdoing upon me, what should I do? Right. And Christ said, forgive seven times 70. Right, right. And sure, Hamlet's father's ghost asked him in private revelation to avenge his uh, wrongdo, I mean, you yes, know, to- Yes, uh, yes, Then, but Hamlet, everybody, including Hamlet, all come to all tragic, tragic death, you know, ending. Everybody needs mm -hmm. tragic ending. Yes, yes. And I'm comparing it to Christ's teaching of forgiveness. Yep. Is there something that we needed to learn here? Yeah, well, let me, let me, yes. No, it's, it's such still a... kind of something that hangs over my head. Yeah, no, I'm so glad you asked the question, Kay. Um, I, I've already tried answering it, but let me apply it to Hamlet because it, it'll make it more complete. You know that I've said on more than a few occasions that the great challenge for all of us is to reconcile justice and mercy. That was what Portia did in Merchant of Venice. If she had just forgiven, so let's go back to Portia for a minute in Merchant. Um, Shylock brings Antonio to court to get his bond because the ships didn't come back, remember? If Shylock has his way, um, Antonio's dead. If Antonio has his way, um, nobody will risk um, a venture enterprise anymore because the law's no good. So what she had to do was bring justice and mercy together, if you remember, right? Is everybody clear on that? Remember, um, Shylock brought Antonio to court. Shylock wanted his bond, which meant Antonio would have died. And the Christians say, the Christians say, forgive him, let him go. If they'd let him go, um, who would have obeyed the laws? It's an open invitation to disobey the laws. If Shylock has his way, Antonio's dead. Right? Um, if if they don't uphold the laws, nobody will risk entering into a business venture again. So in either way, the political world collapses. So the great struggle she faces is reconciling justice with love. That we we had that, okay? Can I put that away just for a second? If anybody's got a question, hold on to it for a second. Now in Hamlet, let's just take Hamlet for a second. Let's just say Hamlet forgives Claudius. What will happen in Denmark if Claudius isn't held accountable for his sin, for his crime? If Hamlet just says, for, by the way, nobody's going to know because it was a ghost who told him. 
sorry, I'm going to take my shirt off here. What would happen if Hamlet just forgave Claudius? Politically, what would happen? Well, you would have a murderer and uh, and a, a a murderer would be the king, and that that is that that will eventually lead to uh, some sort of downfall. <laughs> I can't right. help but believe. Yeah, I'm going to go a step farther. I mean, that Mike's on step one. I mean, he's right where he, that's that covers it all. But just carry the implications of that. Flesh that out a little bit. Claudius has got to control Hamlet. He's got to control Polonius. He's got to control everybody. Because if there's anything going... Remember, he's committed a murder. He, he's guilty in his conscience. He's got to do everything he now, can now to cover his traps, his tracks. There's nobody safe from his machinations. He's going to try to control everybody. So if you put a criminal in charge and ignore his sins, forgive them, what's he going to do? I mean, so it's not just that, you know, he's a, he's a murderer. Everything he's done is going to show the effects of that corruption. It's going to play out in his world. So that Denmark, something's rotten in the state of Denmark, that world is going to get worse and worse and worse, where crimes are not addressed. So the problem, to go back to Kay's question, is, how, I mean, to, to take that principle that I've been, you know, enunciating for a long time. The problem is to bring justice to crimes. Crimes have to be answered. But to bring a spirit of forgiveness to the way you answer them. So the question that I'm asking, and I don't want to answer it right now, Kay, I want to hold it until the end of the play, when Hamlet kills Claudius, that's my big question. Does he do it in the spirit in which he received that quest from his father? So it goes directly to your question. If it's in a spirit of vengeance, then we're still in the father's honor code. So nothing's changed. And, and I'm going to say in some ways Hamlet fails because as a Christian, He's been asked to do something harder. Now, let me take advantage of the moment here because this is really extraordinary, what we're doing. Does everybody see how complicated this gets? If he avenges his father, that, that honor code remains unchanged. Does he bring something different to it? And will that difference make a difference in the regime? Um, so we're either going to go back to the father's honor code or to something new. And here's the question, that's why I asked it. Will anybody recognize it? Will anybody see it? So here's my challenge to you. I mean, you, you know it's one of the questions that I've been putting to you in every work we've read. Boethius said, God is always at work. God's never not at work. He's never not at work. The question is, do we move with him? Are we moving with him? Do we see God at work in this play? At the end of the play, can we point to him? Can we say, he was at work. If so, where? I don't want to answer the question. But that, to me, is one of the great... And by the way, the critics teaching Hamlet will not get there. They're not going to, they're not going to acknowledge the ghost, and they're not going to acknowledge God, because point to God, point to God in the play. I mean, there's one place where you can. I don't want to go there, because I don't want to give my question away. 
But critics are not going to go there. They're going to explain him in terms of sociology or psychology or politics or, and they're going to miss. That's my big question, okay? So, Kay, if you can, you're right on in your question. If you can just hold on until the end, we're going to touch on it, okay? Okay, if I, I set out to do this briefly. Um, you remember that what the, in my opening remarks a couple of weeks ago, I tried to give this sense of a background to Shakespeare's time. And I said that two things happened at his time that radically changed the world that existed up to that time. Okay? Two things happened that radically changed the way things were up until that time. Up until Shakespeare's time, we were in a medieval Christian world. It was Catholic. It was a Christian world. Okay? Now that traditional world was understood by Shakespeare and most of the serious thinkers in these terms. Um, it consisted of the way of Athens, the way of Rome, the Davidic way. Okay, those were the fundamental ways passed on to the Christian world. The way of Athens, the way of Rome, the Davidic way, the way of David. The final way was the way of Christ. And the way of Christ assumed, assimilated all those others, completed them. Because what Christ did was bring a supernatural element in to fulfill those other ways. The way of Athens, democracy, the way of Rome, a republic, the Davidic way, the way of a savior coming, finally the way of Christ coming. Okay? Now those were the ways that defined the traditional way of looking at the world. You can add to those the Ptolemaic scheme of the universe. You know according to Ptolemy that we lived in a geocentric universe, that the earth was at the center of the universe, right? But um, with Copernican's discoveries around 1550 with his published work, it was realized that all of that was wrong. That's why this is such a, um, a time of upheaval. All of that was wrong, that the earth wasn't at the center of the universe, the sun was. So there was this great shift in perspective that changed everything and made everybody more susceptible, more wanting to look to science answers because science has corrected that old way. It was a mistake. So we shifted from a Ptolemaic way, um, scheme of the universe to a, um, a, um, a geocentric to a heliocentric, a sun-centered. When that happened, the earth moved out and took its place among the planets with all the planets because in the Ptolemaic universe it was understood there was nothing to know about earth. Man was given to de decay and death. Everything was always changing so you couldn't understand him. Or, or only understand him imperfectly. But in the shift, when the earth took a place among the planets, which were thought to be eternal, you could study man now because he took his place with those things that were unchanging. That's the beginning of the deterministic sciences, that things cannot be other than they are. They were that way a long time ago. They will be that way forever. That's one of the great diseases of the modern mind. That things are fixed, they're determined. That's Freud, that's Darwin. Um, Marx, um, all of them denied man's free will. Man's a product of these forces. Um, 
So um, these two revolutions took place. One of them was the scientific revolution and the other was the religious. Calvin and Luther were the main thinkers and both of them denied the sacraments, took them away and um, took away the sacerdotal order, the priestly order. It made man the center of things. Okay. The two forms of government that were the most prominent at Shakespeare's time were monarchies, governments under kings, ruled by kings, or democracies, the kind we saw in Dante. The, remember, because it's at Dante's time that these new commercial republics come into existence in Florence and Venice, that man is put in a position of ruling himself, taking responsibility for himself. He's no longer under the king, he's no longer under the pope. Okay, so um, monarchies and democracies um, gave way in these changes. There was a push, as you, we can see it in the modern world, to socialism. That the government takes full control now of all of man's activities. So increasingly over the last 40 years we've seen that man is less and less responsible for himself. He's just a bundle of nerves. Um, he can act on his desires, do whatever he wants. The notion of human responsibility or of a god, all gone. For Shakespeare, man came from God, his end was to return to God. In the modern world, that's not so. Man's, in a sense, lost. Um, so Shakespeare is right on that threshold where that old way is passing away and it's being replaced by something entirely new. Remember we had a taste of that in All's Well That Ends Well when Lefeu said, the age of miracles is past. The age of supernatural things is gone. It's being replaced by a world of reason. Now let me stop and go to the play because I want to, I um, but before I do, any questions on, that's just a, it's just a sketch, it's really just a, very brief, poor sketch of the significance of that moment, you know, that an awful lot is happening that, um, that represents a marked change from the way things were before. Any questions or comments or... The fundamental problem of Hamlet is, has to do with faith. That Hamlet has a private revelation. It's a supernatural. It's beyond the natural order. And he has to, he has to use reason to deal with it. Um, so I hope everybody can see it's one of the most tortured problems of all of Shakespeare's plays. Truly, it's one, it's one of the reasons Hamlet is so important for people. None of the other tragic, not Othello, not Macbeth, not Lear, None of them face the kinds of problems that Hamlet does. Any any questions? Melody? I don't want to jump ahead too, too much, but... Go um, ahead, Chuck. Why uh, can Bernardo and Francisco and uh, Marcellus see the ghost and Gertrude can't? Whoa, whoa. Good question. Wow. Anybody want to... Tackle that one. I'd say get out of the way, but <laughs> anybody want to? What a good question, Chuck. What a good question. 
Wow. I've got a tentative answer. I, I don't think I've ever faced that question before. It is a really good question. Um, anybody have a thought? Lori, answer your husband here. Come on. Let that let that guy know who's who here. Maybe one has already given in to the Protestantism. It's not a rhetorical question, I really wonder. No, no, I think it's a really profound question. I think it's a really good question. I'm going to venture an answer. I, 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 honestly, I can't answer it, um, Chuck. I'm going to um, go out on a limb here. Do you, Doc, you have a thought? Uh, I, okay, uh, go ahead. I think uh, Hamlet's father made himself only visible to Hamlet, but he didn't want others to be able to see him. But others did but, see Chuck, wait. I'm sorry. So it was Hamlet's father. He didn't want to make himself uh, seen by anyone else but his son. Yeah. Yeah, Chuck's question was, but but Marcellus and the guards, if you remember, they saw the ghost. It's, It's because they saw him that they go to get Hamlet. Chuck, my answer is, and it's a, it's a, it's a, I mean, it, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a stretch. Um, it's partly for the reason that Kay is saying that um, the, the I'm, by the way, I'm going to look at that scene with Gertrude because I want to go to this question about the women in the play that we touched on last week that I thought was so important. That the father, the husband, does not want to do anything more to, to make his wife distraught. I mean, he's partly protective of her. Um, he says he says some things to Hamlet, um, in which case we can say that you can block, you know, or you know, I don't know how he does it. He's in a night he's in a nightgown when he appears to Gertrude and Hamlet in that scene. That isn't the way he appears on the ramparts. Um, that's the only thing I have to offer that it's a care it's a care for Gertrude herself um, that he that he doesn't want. Because I, I think, given that scene, if we, particularly if you listen to the way Hamlet um, berates her, that he, he, he just, um, he really tears into her. Um, and, and in my mind, in lots of ways, deservedly. I mean, she's, um, but, um, but to add to that would be um, a lot. Um, that's my only offer, Chuck, I don't. I think it's a really good question. Nobody, nobody saw the ghost after Hamlet saw the ghost. The only people outside of Hamlet who saw the ghost saw him before, before Hamlet, and the ghost needed them to get to Hamlet. Did you all hear that? Sure, that's possible. Yeah, I mean, it adds another a level of meaning to, yeah. Let's let's um, let's go to the play. Wait, um, quickly. The major themes, as I as I presented them over the last couple of weeks, is that at the heart of this play is the um, is the private revelation, and the fact that it's through that revelation that a horrendous crime is uncovered. Without it, we wouldn't know about it. The whole community would not know about it. It's only through that 
that an that an inhuman, awful, heinous crime is um, revealed. But the consequences of that revelation unsettle the regime. It leaves Hamlet in an awful place, and it puts Claudius in an awful place because he's guilty, and he he reaches a point pretty quickly where he's suspicious of Hamlet. Um, Hamlet's the heir; he would be suspicious anyway. But Hamlet's actions make him nervous. He wants to get him out of the way. So the fact that he committed the crime has unnerved him. It's just made him very sensitive to everything going on around him. Um, so that's one. The other is that in Denmark we're looking at an absolutist form of government, totalitarian. It's an absolutist form of government. The king rules and he's a tyrant. Um, why? Um, and it, it goes to my question about family relationships because the third question is look at look at the effect of the political rule on families. So there are a number of things we have to hold on to the revelation, the totalitarian nature of the state and the effect of that totalitarian character on families. Polonius is an awful father. He does everything for the state. He obliges Claudius everywhere to the detriment of his kids. He's just not a good father to um, Laertes or to Ophelia. And one of the questions that leaves me with that we touched on last week is why are the women so weak? Gertrude and Ophelia are both very weak. And if you set them against Portia or Helena, you see a ex radical, extraordinary difference in, in the way the women carry on their lives. God bless. Um, my screen, um, so those are just some of the concerns that I, I have and I'm asking you to keep on your mind as you go through the play. Um, just a quick review. Oh, I said it again. <laughs> um, a quick review of um, the touches on the totalitarian nature of the of the regime and and the fact that Claudius is. <laughs> an exemplary Machiavellian figure. I mean, he, in some ways, he's the almost the perfect... I, I can't think of another king in Shakespeare. Iago gets close to it, he's not a king, but um, Richard III or maybe Henry VIII, are, they, they are so Machiavellian, so capable of conducting rule without anybody being aware of what's wrong. Act 1, Scene 2, I'll just remember, you know, remind you of those lines. Though yet of Hamlet our dear brother's death the memory be green, and that it, it us befitted to bear our hearts in grief and our whole kingdom to be contracted in one brow of woe. Remember he goes on to combine opposites. Woe with joy and sorrow with happiness. And so at a rhetorical level he's using words to help reconcile something that is not being reconciled. So on the surface it seems like he's resolving problems. Think about presidents recently we've had who use rhetoric to, see, to, to talk about hope, you know, and, and appealing to people's um, sensitivity to hope as if that's going to resolve something when those problems are not being resolved. So he, he, he's a master rhetorician. He uses language to get people to feel as if what he's describing is actually real when it's not. 
and then he has that line, which to me is, God, it's one of the most perfect Machiavellian lines in all literature that I've ever faced. After he describes what he's doing in reconciling opposites, he says, nor have we here in Bard, this is Act 1, Scene 2, the opening speech, nor have we here in Bard your better wisdom, which have freely gone with this affair along for all our thanks. Michael or Melody, just you two, because if the rest of you, because you were here last week, but I, any thoughts about those lines? What they what they show us about Claudius as a this is a state of a union. So he's doing everything he can to get over the crisis of having just lost a king. The old king is dead. A new way is here. It's a state of union. He's using this moment to pull a, um, a regime together. What are your thoughts about those lines? Nor have we here in Bard your better wisdoms, which have freely gone with this affair along for all our thanks. That's a master stroke. What does that tell you about him as a political leader? Any? Was, was that in the beginning of scene two, Bob? It's act one, scene two. It's, a, it's line 14. Okay. It's, the, it's Claudius's opening speech right. when he's addressing the regime. It's a state of the union. Melody, any thoughts? This is not my cup of tea, Bob. So, okay, uh, okay. no, no, okay, no don't, thoughts. Don't. I, this, I'm, I'm sorry. No, no, sorry, go ahead. It, to me, it's, it's beautiful be, because it really is so subtly done. It's his way of implicating everybody in what he's doing. So if anything goes wrong, he can point to them. Everything I've done is according to your advice. I'm just following your... I mean, that's what you would, that's what you would expect a political leader who's Machiavellian to do. Nor have we here in Bard your better wisdoms, which have freely gone with the affair for all our thanks. <clears throat> is everybody clear? He's implicating everybody. It's so subtle. He is a great manipulator. He manipulates Polonius, Rosencrantz, Guildenstern, everybody to get his way. Um, so partly, Kay, the answer to your question is if, if Hamlet forgives, if, if we just, I mean, if a man kills somebody, forgiveness does, not, forgiveness does not mean you don't put him in jail. Forgiveness means you put him in jail, but you do not harbor grudges. If he killed somebody you loved, you still has to forgive him. That doesn't mean he doesn't go to jail. Go to jail, but do not. You know, and it's interesting. Christ said, "You know, whenever you've done this to the least of me," and he includes in that visitations to the prison. We're, we're expected to go to the prisons to, you know, for to deal with or to be with criminals, people who have committed crimes. Christ never said, "Don't put anybody in jail." He I mean, he himself fulfilled justice everywhere, but he is saying, forgive. Um, okay, here's where I want to go. Um, last time we left, last before we left, um, we were talking about the women, and it was, it said, I said that I wanted to get back to them at the end, but you all jumped. And it was clear that I couldn't wait. Um, 
so I want to cover two things and I want to come back to the women. Um, what do we learn ab about this regime, about Claudius, about Hamlet, for anybody, from what happens to the women? Okay. Before we get there, you know, we went through the scene when Hamlet visits his father and the father says, avenge my death. And then um, Hamlet meets with his friends. The king has um, got his friends to spy on him. Hamlet is is good at um, um, getting them to be honest about why they're there. And um, he meets with the players and asks the players if they can put on a, a, um, a play. And it's a wonderful scene because it shows how educated Hamlet is because if you remember when he asked the players to give a speech, the speech he asked was from the Aeneid, which, a which is a work we've done together. Um, that's not an accident. Um, hold on now. I'm gonna, let me, hold on, just give me a minute here. Um, um Claudia, in your Claudia speech. In act, act 2, act 2, scene 2, about line 230 or so in mine, Hamlet is meeting with his two friends. These are close friends. Um, I'm going to mute you guys all. Um, remember, if you, if, you, uh, if you need to speak, just unmute yourselves. But... It'll just cut out background noise. Um, Hamlet says, In the secret parts of fortune, almost true, she's a strumpet. What news? By the way, remember, the, the one of the major images of Boethius's consolation was the wheel of fortune. It was a wheel, pictured as a wheel of fortune. You can't read a Shakespeare play without Shakespeare alluding to that image, a wheel of fortune and fortune going up and down and lifting people up and throwing them down. In the streak of parts of fortune, almost true she is a strumpet. What news? None, my lord. That is, you can't depend on fortune. If stock goes well, you shouldn't depend on that. you still got to be prudent. Good. You have to be virtuous. None, my lord, but that the world um, grown honest, then doomsday's near, but your news is not true. Let me question more in particular. What have you, my good friends, deserved at the hands of fortune that she sends you to Prison hither, prison, my lord, Denmark's a prison. Then is the world one, a goodly one in which there are many confines, wards, and dungeons, Denmark being one of the worst. So Hamlet acknowledges that there's something wrong with all regimes, but there's something particularly wrong here, and there is. Um, the king killed his brother and married the queen to take the throne. About line 280, um, Rosencrantz turns to Guildenstern and says, What say you? Nay, then, I have an eye of you. If you love me, hold off. Hold not off. My lord, we were sent for. I will tell you why. So shall my anticipation prevent your discovery. He's trying to protect them. He's just learned that they were sent for, so he's learned that there's something going on. But he he's he's going to say something that will partly spare them so they don't have to confess to anything. Prevent your discovery and your secrecy to the king and queen 
Moltnuf feather. I have of late, but wherefore I know not, lost all my mirth, forgone all custom of um, exercises indeed. It goes so heavily with my disposition that this goodly frame, the earth, seems to me a sterile promontory. This most excellent canopy, the air, look you. This brave or hamming firmament, this majestical roof fretted with gold and fire, why it appeared nothing to me but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors. What a piece of work is a man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action how like an angel, in apprehension how like a god. The beauty of the world, the paragon of animals, and yet to me what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me, nor woman neither, though by your smiling you seem to say so. That is, they were making a smile that that suggested that he liked women. Um, so Hamlet has this darkened view. He sees how great man is, but he also sees how corrupt he is. So he, he doesn't romanticize, he doesn't sentimentalize. Um, the players come at this point and um, he asks them to be prepared to do something that he will um, clear up um, shortly. Um, now here's where I want to go. I want to look at two, wait, I'm going to, so I want to get to the women, but before we do, you know that Hamlet puts on the mousetrap play. He asks the players to do this scene in which somebody's poisoned in it because he wants to see the um, reaction of the king, assuming that that will tell him whether the king is guilty or not and whether he should trust the ghost or not. Um, on Act 3, Scene 3, the, the mousetrap play has just taken place. Now let me stop here for a minute before I look at what follows. The, the, the great line of criticism on Hamlet through the 19th century was that he was a, pro a procrastinator. A procrastinator. He didn't act. He was too given to thinking. Um, let me stop with that for a minute. I just want to throw that out to you guys. What, what's your response to that? Is that the way you see Hamlet? That he's a procrastinator? You know, by the way, there's evidence in the play because you know that he will um, scourge himself after he sees the players when the player gives the scene and, and breaks up, gets almost teary when he starts talking about the death of Priam and Hecuba's response. It's that scene in the Aeneid when we see Troy falling. And he says, this man weeps at a fiction and I can't bring myself to kill a man. That deserves it. So there's textual evidence to suggest that he himself is berating himself because he doesn't act. Let me, I don't want to take too long, but I'd, I'd like to get your response in that because that was the major line of thinking on Hamlet through the 19th century. What do you guys think? Is he, is he procrastinating? Is he delaying? Is he, does he not act? Is he a man too, too caught up in his own head to act? The answer comes after, as you say, we see the whole, like we see the whole play and his action in the end. So I, I think at that point, not knowing what's to come, that that's, it's reasonable to think that. But uh, in the end, he 
assassinates Claudius not once, but in a sense twice, because he thinks it's Claudius in the closet when he kills Polonius. And he acts um, dispatch at the end, and with, but it's not just a mad fit. He very intentionally at the end kills yeah. Claudius. Yeah. Anybody else? I, I don't think that he he's procrastinating as much as he knows that what he's planning to do is wrong and that he's planning to commit murder. But even though he thinks he's justified, there's still that, you know, you want to cross all your T's and dot your I's and make sure this is the right thing. Um, see if something else can come up to maybe change the situation. So I don't consider him procrastinating as much as not rushing to to finish it. Yeah. He wants to make sure that it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, if, if we look at the play, I, I mean, that argument to me is... That line of argument to me is defenseless. It it just has it holds nothing, honestly. Remember, Hamlet can't do anything because what he's doing is the information he's got is from a ghost. So it's not like he can do anything right away. He's and he's not setting out to murder the, the his uncle. He's setting out to avenge a death to to do an act of justice. Um, but he can't do anything. And it's interesting to me that the first thing he does do is put on a mousetrap play. And by the way, think about how consonant that is with the scientific world coming into play. I mean, Shakespeare was a brilliant man. He's not going to do anything until he performs an experiment that will give him proof. Right? He set up an experiment. It's, I mean, you can't be more scientific than that. And, I, and by the way, I don't think that's a play to the... I think that's just because Shakespeare has a good mind. That would have been true in the middle of the, you know, the Middle Ages. Any thinking man would have done that. And what does he do immediately after that play? He's going to kill Claudius. We're going to read that scene right now. I don't, I don't want to give it away. And he doesn't for a reason. And then shortly, in the very next scene, or one apart from that, he goes to his mother's room and he thinks Claudius is in the closet and kills him. This is not a man who doesn't act. I just want to get that off the table. He's doing everything he can within reason. Um, later in the play, he's going to be taken to England. He's going to be captured by f pirates. He fights them. And at the very end, he goes into a, a fencing match knowing the likelihood he's going to get killed. He is not a man afraid of dying or afraid of acting. I just want to get that off the table because that was the way <laughs> whole schools of critics looked at Hamlet. It just couldn't be more wrong. Okay. Now let me look at the scene right after the mousetrap play and then I want to look at the women before we go tonight. So Hamlet has the players put on the mousetrap to test the king. It's an experiment. And on the basis of that he concludes that the ghost was right. Remember, the danger facing him is he knows the ghost could have been evil. He has to make a test. Because he knows the ghost could be tricking him to damnation. So the mousetrap play is brilliant. It, it's, it's testing all of his hypotheses. He doesn't know what's true. He's trying to determine what is true. And by the reaction of the king, it he, the, what the ghost said is confirmed. So... 
Act 3, Scene 3. I like him not, nor stands it safe with us to let his madness range. Therefore prepare you, I your commission will forthwith dispatch, and he to England shall along with you. The terms of our estate may not endure hazard, so near as doth hourly grow out of his brow. Um, this is, I, I don't, Guildenstern and Rosencrantz, I don't know if they're Jewish. The names suggest something Jewish, I'm not sure. Um, Guildenstern says, so will ourselves provide most holy and religious fear it is to keep those many, many bodies safe that live and feed upon your majesty. They take a political action and invest it with a religious feeling. As if they're doing it for God when what they're doing is for the state. Now that's crucial. Okay? That's Guildenstern. Rosencrantz. The single and peculiar life is bound with all the strength and armor of the mind to keep itself from noyance. But much more, that spirit upon whose wheel depends and rests the lives of many. What matters is the common good. The cess of majesty dies not alone, but like a gulf doth draw what's near it with it. That is, you have to act for the good of everybody, the good of the state. Or tis a messy wheel fixed on the summit of the highest mount, to whose huge spokes ten thousand lesser things are mortized and adjoined, which, when it falls, each small annexment, petty consequences attends the boist the boisterous rune. If the state goes down, you lose everybody. So he's making a defense for doing something for the sake of the state. We've seen that in Polonius, we've seen it in Claudius. Never alone did the king sigh, but with a general groan. Arm you, I prepare you to this speedy voyage, for it will fetters put upon this fear, which now goes to free-footed. He, he wants to contain things. Things seem to get out of control. But notice the defense of both of his friends. Those are Amlet's friends. Both of them are made in terms of the state. That you give yourself to the state in order to do, avoid um, affecting a lot of people in a negative way. Now, the king says about line 35, he just says goodbye to Polonius. He's setting the, the commission into effect that Hamlet's going to take off with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern to England. Oh, my offense is rank, it smells to heaven, it hath the primal eldest curse upon it, a brother's murder. Pray, can I not, though inclination be as sharp as will. He wants to pray, says he can't. My stronger guilt defeats my strong intent, and like a man to double business bound, I stand in pause where I shall first begin, and both neglect. What if this cursed hand were thicker than itself with brother's blood? Is there not rain enough in the sweet heavens to wash it white as snow? We all believe, it's our belief, no matter how heinous a sin, murder, adultery, Christ will forgive it if we go to him. So will God. So will God. Doesn't matter how bad. Right? Moses killed a man. David killed a man and was adulterer. Yeah? God loved him. Um, so he knows that if he just confessed his sin, he'd be forgiven. Now, before we go any farther, knowing this man as you do, do you expect him to confess his sin? No. Where to serves mercy but to confront the vigor of offense? 
if he's going to expect mercy, if he's going to be, if he's going to expect forgiveness, he has got to be contrite to acknowledge it. Um, by the way, on this question of mercy and forgiveness that Kate asked, because I think of this, so remember all those passages in, we, in which Christ sends people to hell. Numerous times he makes it clear, you know, the, the man with the wedding garment and some of the parables, um, casting people out. And so it, 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 it asks of us to take some real care in, in what he's condemning and where he condemns and where he doesn't. Um, what is in prayer but this twofold force to be forestalled ere we come to fall or pardoned being down? Then I'll look up, my fault is past. But oh, what form of prayer can serve my turn? <laughs> what does that mean? Oh, can serve my turn. Is there, is there, go, go ahead, does somebody start? Go ahead. To serve his purpose. Right, right. Can he say a prayer to God to ask for forgiveness without having to give up everything he's done? That he, he wants a God who will accommodate him. Yeah? Um, but oh, what form of prayer can serve my turn? Forgive me my foul murder? That cannot be since I am still possessed of those effects for which I did the murder. My crown, my own ambition, my queen. That is, he's not going to give up the things he committed the murder for. How can he be forgiven? Christ, the opening lines of Christ's ministry were, repent, repent. That was the condition for forgiveness, where people didn't. Um, it's not God who turns away from them. It's them who turn away from God. In the corrupted currents of this world, offenses guild at hand may shove by justice, and often to seen the wicked prize itself, buys out the law. This is that Boethian argument. Evil men benefit. But tis not so above. There is no shuffling. There the action lies in its true nature, and we ourselves compelled, even to the teeth and forefend of our faults, to give in evidence. In heaven there are no sins. There's nothing that's not perfect in heaven. Remember, this is Dante. I mean, all the sins, right, in purgatory were... Nobody goes into heaven who isn't like Christ. What then? What rest? Try what repentance can. What can it not? Yet what can it when once cannot repent? O wretched state, O bosom black as death, O limed soul that's struggling to be free are more engaged. You catch birds in line. So they can't free themselves. Help angels make a say. Bow stubborn knees and heart with strings of steel. Be soft as sinew of the newborn babe. All may be well. So at the very end, it seems like he may actually carry out a prayer. Right? I mean, it seems his intent right now. Now, Hamlet enters and says, Now might I do it, Pat, now um, as is a praying. And now I'll do it. And so he goes to heaven. And so I am revenged. That would be scanned. A villain kills my father, and for that I, his sole son, do the same villain, send him to heaven. Why, this is higher in salary, not revenge. So he says, No, up, sword, and know that a man's horrid hint, when he is drunk asleep, or in his rage, or in the incestuous pleasure of his bed, as a game of swearing, or about some act that has no relish of salvation in it, then I'll kill him. When he's doing something damnable, then I'll 
carry out my revenge. Now let's stop for a moment. What do we make of this scene? And where is Hamlet in his quest? He's a Christian from Wittenberg. His father's given him his quest. He has now he knows the king, he knows the king's guilty. And he the, the king's at prayer, and Hamlet says, This is a good way to avenge my dad. I kill him and send him to heaven. That's like pay, <laughs> that's like paying a killer a salary. So what do you make of Hamlet here? What do you guys make of the scene here? Honestly, I, I, that part really confused me because it's it it, it 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 just confused me because he backtracked on avenging his father's death and it, it, it the, the mission was off. You know, his, his mission was off, and I, I don't know if God stopped him in his mind. If God, I don't, I, that just, it just really confused me. I'm like, why did he just do it? What difference would it have made? Well, wait, just be clear. Remember he says, upsort, <laughs> and know that a more horrid bit when he's drunk. That easy said, when he's doing some damnable act, then I'll kill him. Right. Because then he'll send him to hell, and he'll accomplish his vengeance. So it's not that the mission is over. It's, it's completely intact. But I want to know what's happening in the scene. What are the ironies here? What are some of the ironies in this scene? Because they're to me, they're profound. Heather, go ahead. So the irony is, is that the act itself of staying his hand would seem to be an act of mercy, but it's not. He's actually struggling with vengeance because he's going to wait to kill him when it will certainly damn the man to hell, which is an act of, of pure vengeance and justice. It is not an act of mercy at all. Right, right. And so the staying of his hand is not merciful yeah. in this case. Yeah. But then the interesting thing is at the end, we find out in the king's last words that he's actually... Don't go there. Saying, Don't go to the end. Hold oh, off on the sorry. end. <laughs> Don't go to the end. Sorry. We've got... I want to... There's so much going on that I want to okay. hold on to before we get there. Sorry, you guys, but... No, it's okay. Anybody else? Anybody else? What's the second command? What's the fourth commandment? Out of thy father and mother. Is it fourth? Maybe it's the third. Maybe. Honor thy father and mother is, is fourth. Four. Right. Wow. Yeah. Good. What's third? Sorry. Keep holding this up. Yeah. It, it depends on whether it's a Protestant or a Catholic. It does. It's true. <laughs> we need a close reader in here. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> Michael's actually right. Um, the You're talking about the Luther version? No, here. The commandment that I'm thinking about is the command that says, Take not the name of thy Lord in vain. Uh, oh, two. That's true. That does, that does not mean don't swear. That does not mean don't swear. People swear all the time and they're not in danger of violating that commandment. That commandment is saying, you don't speak for God. You, you don't, don't take his name in vain. You don't speak for him. God damn somebody, if you meant that, in trouble. Right? In whose authority rests the ultimate end of man? Jesus, God. God. God, right? If man presumes to take that over, he's committing a mortal sin. 
one of the reasons I love this scene is nothing happens. Hamlet doesn't kill him. Nothing happens. The, the king's at prayer, we think. Nothing happens. And yet, I, this moment, in terms of the play, the whole play, is the most dangerous moment facing Hamlet in everything he does. He can fight pirates. He can he kill Claudius, or Polonius, thinking it was Claudius. Um, here he wants to damn a man. He doesn't kill him because he wants to wait until he's damnable. That's vengeance. Then in a sense is a rotted form of vengeance from that ancient world. That makes it even worse. The the king, the father, his father is an honorable man. I I don't think would have ever his father by the way, I, I I don't know that I've said this before, just his father would have never wished that because he wasn't a Christian. Damnation was not on his mind. He was a man of honor who would fight for lands or Yeah, he's a he's he's a warrior. Hamlet will present him that way. He would have never wanted to kill a man to send him to hell. Hamlet wants to send Claudius to hell. Mm. So, in terms of the play, this is one of the most, I think it's one of the most amazing scenes in the whole play, because nothing happens, and yet Hamlet's facing a mortal danger to himself. His soul, right, the argument that I'm going to make, his soul right at this moment is in danger of damnation. Because he's wishing damnation on another man. That's not in our hands. I, whatever that command, sorry, I thought it was the third or fourth commandment, but to not take the name of the Lord in vain. Okay. Bob? Yeah. Bob, yeah. I, I think, I love this scene as well, and I think it's because, to me, it made Hamlet seem more human. Because we talked about, was he procrastinating? And I, I'd always thought maybe he was just really putting a lot of thought into this. Like you had, you mentioned, and I forgot, that was this spirit evil? He wanted to make right. sure it wasn't evil. He wanted right. to make sure right. everything was correct. Right. But that moment of just pure anger, um, <laughs> I really understood that. <laughs> yeah. I, I caught that. So anyway, I thought that was... It was very interesting because to me that was a very human thing yep. to go through, and for yep. him to pull himself back because of that, I I don't know. I thought it was fair. Here's good. the great irony: he seems to be pulling himself back and doing a good thing. That's the beauty of what Shakespeare's doing. He seems to be doing something good. People walk by this thing; he didn't kill him. He's damning himself at this moment. That's the beauty of Shakespeare. It's just extraordinary. Nothing happens, and yet Hamlet is putting himself in grave, grave danger at this moment. Here's the, here's the other thing. One of the critics, it's a critic that I'm arguing with in the book that I'm writing, presents Hamlet as greater than Shakespeare, and, and he, he makes the argument that he's created us all, that Hamlet is greater than all of us. That Hamlet, Hamlet doesn't send him to heaven, he wants to send him to hell. Hamlet um, can see around everybody. And there's a, I hope everybody sees there's a great truth to that. Whenever he's talking to anybody, he can see things that they don't. I mean, Shakespeare just makes that clear again and again and again. Um, but the part of the beauty, the irony of this scene is Hamlet sees so well. How well does he see in this scene? He looks at Claudius and says, Upsword, no doubt a more horrid hint, when he's drunk or asleep or 
um, that he's doing something that has no relish in salvation, then trip him, you know. That his heels may kick at heaven, and that his soul may be as damned and black as hell, whereto it goes. My mother says, this physic but prolongs thy sickly days. The king gets up and says, my words fly up, my thoughts remain below, words without thoughts never to heaven go. What's the irony of this moment? Connie, what's the irony? So your audio's not on, Connie. He's not going to repent. So those words went up, but that's not going to help him any. Yeah. He's just not going to repent. He's he's not giving it all up. Yeah. How well does Hammer read in this moment in this scene? Does he see Claudius as he is? Pretty good. <laughs> he he misreads him completely. He's praying. I mean, Shakespeare is just, he, he takes the whole world and pulls up our heels and turns us upside down. I think it's to try to straighten us up and get us, you know, on our feet. Because, I mean, very often people look to be praying. Do we know what's in the soul of another person? Um, Shakespeare's teaching us to be very careful of the judgments we make, always. Always, always. Um... One more scene, and then I want to look at um, I want to look at the women. Yeah, I am, and it's I'm I'm way late. Um, there are um, a number of scenes where Act Two, Scene Two, about line one fifty-five or so, Polonius says to the king. Take this from this, if this be otherwise, if circumstance lead me, I will find where truth is hid, though we're hid indeed within the center. He's presuming to know he will get to the center of Hamlet's soul. Right? That Those are his words. No matter what happens, I will get there. He has said again and again that he will get to the center. Um <laughs> How, how well does he does Polonius read anybody? He's presuming to know the center of a soul. Hamlet thought he knew the center of Claudius, the soul of prayer. Remember the opening words of the play. Who's there? The play is it's taking on one of the most difficult problems in Christianity, this whole question of faith and its effects on us, and how it affects our reading how well we see one another and what we do with each other based on our faith and our powers of reason. Act 3, scene 2, when the friends come to get him again, this is... Um, um, just after the, the uh, mousetrap scene and just before the scene I read here where Hamlet comes across Claudius at prayer the two friends come to meet with him um, they are sent by the queen because Gertrude is asking them to ask Hamlet to come see her okay and it's in this exchange that Hamlet tests his friends again and un in a sense unmasks them it, it's once again it's it's a scene showing 
how well he sees into other characters when they don't see very well themselves. Um, they make it clear that the mother sends for him about line 317, Rosencrantz, she desires to speak to you with her um, in her closet ere you go to bed. Hamlet, we shall obey. Um, and then Hamlet begins to question them, um, why they're with him, what they're doing. And he sees a player from the, from the actors group pass with a recorder. It's like a flute instrument. And he takes it, Hamlet, um, he takes the flute. Guildenstern says, oh, my lord, if my duty be too bold, my love is too unmannerly, because um, Hamlet says, play it. You play upon this pipe? My lord, I cannot. I pray you. Believe me, I cannot. So this is about line 335 or so, act 3, scene 2. I do beseech you. I know no touch of it, my lord. It is as easy as lying. God, govern these vantages these vintages with your fingers and thumb. Give it breath with your mouth, and it will discourse most eloquent music. Look you, these are the stops, but these cannot I command to any utterance of harmony. I have not the skill. Why, look you now, how unworthy a thing you make of me. You would play upon me, you would seem to know my stops, you would pluck out the heart of my mystery, you would sound me from my lowest note to the top of my compass, and there is much music, excellent, that is, the human being is an extraordinary piece of harmony in Shakespeare's mind. Remember, he's created by God. He's a piece of poetry. He's, he's got this am amazing gift, even, even though it's fouled with sin. Um, you would sound me from my lowest note to the top of my compass, and there's much music, excellent voice in this little organ. Yet cannot you make it speak God's blood? Do you think I am easier to be played on than a pipe? Call me what instrument you will, though you can fret me, you cannot play upon me. Mm -hmm. um, how well do people, first of all, how well do people see each other? Um, how much are people given to using other people? Okay. So these are his two friends. These are childhood friends. Now go back because I want to. I want to take up the women. So, Doctor Bob. Yeah, go, go, sir. Are, are we to are we to understand that that Hamlin is kind of on? He's on to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Oh, without, he's he been knows on. Yes, he. Yeah. That they've been sent to spy on him. He knew that in the earlier scene when he said, yeah. "Why have you been sent?" He, he when he said yeah. the queen, you know, the king sent. He okay. remember well, here. I I think we in our. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm going too fast. Um, it seems to me the awful quality of the queen and Ophelia is their innocence. They're too innocent about evil. One of the qualities of the men, Polonius and Hamlet's friends, is their innocence. They're just too, it, they don't deal with evil. Um, Hamlet knows, he already knows, we know that, that Claudius is a murderer. And he's clear-headed enough to know that whatever this man is doing, particularly because he's the heir, puts him in danger. Mm -hmm. So that's why he asks if he was, if his friends were sent for, they were, okay. Now I want to go to the women because um, one of the, one of the, one of the comments we made last week had to do with the two women. 
go to Act 1, Scene 3, just quickly. I'm going to jump around for a minute, you guys. Act 1, Scene 3, about line 100 or so. Remember, this is when Polonius sees that Ophelia is interested in Hamlet, and he's doing everything he can to discourage his daughter from having anything to do with this prince. Mary, I will teach you, think yourself a baby, that you have taken these tenders for true pay, which are not sterling. Tend to yourself more dearly, or not to crack the wind of the poor phrase, running it thus, you'll tender me a fool. He's telling her to stay away from Hamlet, because Hamlet will simply use her. Is Hamlet using her? No. I mean, I, I'm not aware of anything he does. Act scene two, act scene, act, sorry, act two, scene two, about line 115. The queen and Polonius get a hold of one of Ophelia's letters. In that letter, Hamlet says um, that he loves her. Um, to thy celestial and my soul's idol, the most beautiful Ophelia. Polonius has nothing but bad things to say about Hamlet's poetry. He's, he's, an, inst he's, an, he's an instance of a modern debunker. He will only see bad things. That's an ill phrase, a vile phrase. Beautiful is a vile phrase, but you shall hear thus. In her excellent white bosom, these, he goes on, Hamlet goes on, um, doubt thou the stars are fire, doubt that the sun doth move, doubt truth to be a liar, but never doubt I love, O oh dear Ophelia, I am ill at these numbers, that is, the, the metric numbers of poetry. Um, I am ill at these numbers, that is, he, he's struggling to write poetry, I have not art to reckon my groans, but that I love thee best, O oh most best, believe it, adieu, thine evermore most dear lady, while this machine, his body, is to him, Hamlet. The, um, Polonius thinks he's mad. The, the king pretty much, or Polonius, the queen goes along with him. Um, on Act 3, Scene 1, the king and the queen ask Ophelia to play a role so they can spy on Hamlet. They've sent to him so that he will come across her presumably by accident, and it'll give them a chance to view him. Act 3, scene 1, <coughs> the king. <coughs> this is about line 30. For we have closely sent for Hamlet hither, that he as twere by accident may hear front Ophelia. Her father and myself, lawful espials, lawful spying. Remember to a Machiavellian king, anything is lawful, so long as it justifies the end, the ends justify the means. We'll so bestow ourselves that seen, unseen, we may of their encounter frankly judge and gather by him as he has behaved, if it be the affliction of his love or no, that thus he suffers. The king wants to know if he has to be frightened of something with this man or not. A queen, I shall obey you, and for your part of you, I do wish that your good beauties, good beauties be the happy cause of Hamlet's wildness. So shall I hope your virtues will bring him to his wanted way again to both your honors. <clears throat> the king wants to know if his madness is of craft, if there's a purpose behind it, or if he's really mad. And notice that the queen sends Ophelia on aware of her beauty. Hamlet makes a good bit of that um, about line 100. He says to Ophelia when the two are together, 
Are you honest, my lord? Are you fair? What means your debt is, is she virtuous, is she good? It means beauty or virtue. What means your lordship? That if you be honest and fair, your beauty should admit no discourse, your honesty should admit no discourse to your beauty. Could beauty, my lord, have better commerce than with honesty? I truly, for the power of beauty will sooner transform honesty from what it is to a bod than the force of honesty can translate beauty into its likeness. This was sometime a pardon, but now the time gives proof. I did love you once. That is, he's saying that very often beauty in a woman, um, women use badly. They use it for themselves. So instead of learning to be truthful or honest or virtuous, they use it. And men very often are attracted by the beauty of women and regret it later because in time they come to see that there's more to the woman than her outward looks, that her honesty or truthfulness or her virtue is more important. He says, it's over, I love you not. I was the more deceived. Get thee to a nunnery. Why wouldst thou be a breeder of sinners? I am myself indifferent honest, but yet I could accuse me of such things that it were better my mother had not borne me. I am very proud, revengeful, ambitious, with more offenses at my beck than I have thoughts to put them in imagination to give them shape or time to act them. What should such fellows as I do crawling between earth and heaven? We are errant knaves all believe, none of us. Go thy ways to a nunnery. Where is your father at home? Let the doors be shut upon him, that he may play the fool nowhere, but is in his own, his own house. Farewell. Um, he says again, get thee to a nunnery. He is aware of a darkness in him. Now, he, I, I've got to find, I, next time we meet, I'll find it. Hamlet says, I have to be cruel to be kind. He has to commit an evil to be good. Now, if that's not obvious, let me just take a second with it. According to the respectable standards in the Denmark world, the king's a good king. Anybody who killed him would be bad, right? So according to appearances, he would be committing an evil. Now this is really important. We, we will, if we get together, if we stay together long enough to do Melville and Hawthorne, it's going to become, it's going to hit everybody in the face. That more and more in the, in the modern world, because respectability becomes the measure of everybody's goodness, if you conform to it, you're good. That's the Protestant world, by the way. If you conform to it, you're good. If you don't, you're bad. You're a nonconformist. You belong to a renegade culture. Hamlet knows that if he's to carry through with his father's quest, he's going to have to commit an evil to do it. He's going to have to go against a social order. And what he's aware of now is it's, it's, it weighs on him as a bad thing. He's got to do this. It, I, I'm hoping everybody sees this. The, the revelation put him at odds with everything in the social order. Where can he go? To what can he turn? And he knows at this point that the woman he loved is being used. And she's allowing herself to be used. He loved her. She's become an instrument of the state. She's accommodated. She's going along with it all. Um, I'll find the I'll find the the words um, another the next time we meet. But go going over now to the scene where Hamlet goes to meet his mother. If I can quickly do this.
Um, Act 3, scene 4, the very beginning. Um, he enters and says, Now, mother, what's the matter? Hamlet, thou hast thy father much offended. The king's upset. Everybody knows it. Mother, you have my father much offended. Come, come, you answer with an idle tongue. Go, go, you answer with a wicked tongue. Everything that he goes on to say from this point on will make it clear that what she's doing is wicked. She's complicit. She's made herself complicit in an evil. Now, before we start, last time I asked everybody to characterize Gertrude's, um, I think somebody said it reminded, they were reminded of uh, Cleopatra, or, uh, Clytemnestra, manipulative power, you know. And I can't remember the other one. Um, I, I don't think the queen is like anything like that. Uh, but, but let me read this through. My question will be, how do we look at the queen? What kind of a woman is she? And how do we look at Ophelia? We know that Ophelia is going to commit suicide. She will take her life. Um, the women aren't particularly strong. What's going on in this regime that it affects the women the way it does? Um, from this point on, he, he's going to just take her apart. Um, um, about line 30 or so, Ah, lady, it was my word, thou wretched, rash, intruding fool, farewell, I took thee for better. Take thy fortune, thou findest it um, to be too busy in some danger. Leave ringing of your hands, peace, sit you down and let me wring your heart. For so I shall, if it, if it be made of penetrable stuff, if damned custom have not brazed it so, that it is proof and bulwark against sense. That is, he's concerned that the social conventions have so taken over that it's hardened her heart. Will she hear him? She says, What have I done that thou darest wag thy tongue in noise so rude against me? Such an act that blurs the grace and blush of modesty, calls virtue hypocrite, takes off the rose from the fair forehead of an innocent love, and sets a blister there, makes marriage vows as false as dicer's oaths. Of such a deed as from the body of contraction plucks the very soul, and sweet religion makes a rhapsody of word. You falsified everything. You gave a vow to your husband to love him forever. He's not been dead two weeks, and you're married. So what was a religious ceremony has been made into a travesty. Heaven's face does glow, and the solidity and compound mass with her visage as against the doom is thought sick at the act. I me, what act that roars so loud and thunders in the index? What are you, where is all this going? This is where Hamlet goes to the core of it. Look there upon this picture and on this, the counterfeit presentment of two brothers. See what a grace was settled on his brow. This is his father. Hyperion's curls, the font of Jove himself, an eye like Mars to threaten and command, a station like the herald Mercury, now lighted on a heaven-kissing hill, a combination and a form indeed, where every god did seem to set his seal to give the world assurance of a man. He compares his father to pagan gods, and all of them were warriors. They were all fighters. This was your husband. Look you now what follows. Here's your husband like a mildewed ear blasting his wholesome brother. Have you eyes? Could you in the fair mountain have to feed and batten on this moor? Have you eyes? You cannot call it love, for at your age the heyday of the blood is tame. It's humble and waits upon the judgment. You should have waited. 
You can't lay this up to youth where your passions get a hold of you. And what judgment would um, step from this to this, from one man to the other? Since sure you have, else could you not have motion? Anything that motion that doesn't think is a machine. But you've got sense. But sure that sense is apoplexed, paralyzed, for madness would not err. Nor sense to ecstasy was ne'er so thralled, but it reserved some quantity of choice to serve in such a difference. What devil was it that thus has cozened you, Ed Hoodman, blind eyes without feeling, feeling without sight, ears without hands, or eyes, smelling, sans all? Oh, but a sickly part of one true sense could not so mope, O oh shame, where is thy blush? Rebellious hell, if thou canst mutiny in a matron's bones, a matron's bones to flaming youth, let virtue be as wax and melt in her own fire. You can't chalk this up to youth. Proclaim no shame when the compulsive ardor gives the charge, since frost itself as actively does burn and reason panders will. You're using your mind to justify your passions, your will. O Hamlet, speak no more, that turnest mine eyes into my very soul, and there I see such black and grained spots as will not leave their thing. Now remember, lots of people have presumed to look inside the soul. She's claiming that Hamlet has actually seen into her, that he's uncovered things in her that are dangerous for her spiritually. Um, I don't want to go on. Um, Hamlet will ask his mother to stay away from the bed about line 150 or so. Confess yourself to heaven, repent what's past, avoid what is to come, and do not spread the comport on the weeds to make them rancor. Forgive me this my virtue, for in the fatness of these percy times, virtue, here it is, virtue itself of vice must pardon beg. He's going to have to do things that will seem bad in order to do a good. Yet curb and woo for leave to do him good. Um, oh, here, about line 175. Um, he asks her to stay away, that I must be there accurate and minister. I will bestow him and will answer well the death I gave him. So again, good night, that is, he killed Polonius. I must be cruel only to be kind. Um, go down 190, um, make you to ravel, let this matter out, that I essentially am not in madness, but mad in craft. He's trying to reassure her that what he's doing is not mad. He has to be careful because things are impossible. Let me take a minute. It's much later than I wanted to be, but um, characterize Gertrude as a woman. Is she like Clytemnestra? Um, remember Clytemnestra manipulated and did everything she could to set up Agamemnon and killed him with her lover. And Mike, characterize Gertrude, can you? She's she's certainly a willing participant in in uh, in the murder and uh, 
I don't know. I, I, I fail to see a virtue there. Uh, she is, uh, uh, as Hamlet uh, castigates her, she, uh, she pleads for his restraint, uh, but she doesn't face up to the truth of what he's saying. I don't think she knows that, that Claudius killed, but um, I mean, so I'm not, I'm not sure that we can say that, but, but you're right. I mean, he, can, he just tears her apart. Um, how do we look at well, her? I'm, as, as I'm sorry. sorry go ahead. I, I, I'm totally off. I, I, I'm a, I, I've, uh, I, I thought that she was a, a, a participant in the murder. I... I'm not aware of any evidence in the play to okay. show that. Okay. Um. Yeah, uh, I think uh, Gertrude is just a survivalist. She's just trying to survive yep. in that uh, circumstances she was given. Yeah. Kay, follow that. Hamlet says some really dark things about her. I mean, he sees... He's he's describing things that are spiritually corrupt. So if she's a survivor. I mean, you know, people can be survivors, and that could be a positive term. I uh, think she, in in an effort to survive, uh, that may have put her in the eyes of Hamlet that she was somewhat like evil, just a conniving. But uh, I don't think she's inherently uh, evil. Yeah, or even consciously. But Melody, go ahead. So I agree with Kay in that um, I think that the ladies here are the antithesis of Hamlet because they all have this, this uh, revelation, so to speak. But Hamlet pushes into it to figure out what's going on and and, and um, tries to tries to uncover the meanings of everything else but Gertrude in order to keep her own um, way of life kind of just pushes her off to the side and you know Hamlet would have wanted her to wait and not get what uh, married because she legitimized the new king by marrying him yeah um so by marrying him so quickly nobody's going to question it and so that screwed everything up there there could have been a you know an inquiry but there wasn't because she married him so quickly and the same with ophelia she you know if she truly loved hamlet she could have questioned it when they said he's crazy and you know tried to work a little harder to figure out what was going on but maybe her own ego got in the way she didn't um she didn't try hard enough, and and the, in that way, I think they're the antithesis of of Hamlet because he actually put the work in, and they were just lazy. And I I, I hate to say lazy, but it was it was easier for them to just take things as they were, yep. and to instead of question yep. them. Yep. They're both particularly Gertrude to me. I mean, um, Kay's word is a good one, but my word is accommodating that for herself that she goes along because it's easier to go along and and self-protective to do that <coughs> let me ask this one question sorry we're we're at times we're at time right now so i want to make this brief 
um, in lots of ways, these two women, Portia is the antithesis to these two women. She actively confronts a problem, takes it on, actually resolves it. And um, as I read that play, I mean, you know, we've done it together. It seems to me that one of the reasons she can do that is because she was obedient to her father. Remember, they make a big point about that when she and Nerissa are talking about their father's will and having to do his father's will. Remember, the father set up the ordeal, the three caskets. He was the one that set it up. And she honored her father and was obedient to him. Desdemona and Othello, we're still in Venice, disobeys, she elopes. And it's a tragic play. So Portia is, is, is an exemplum. She's exemplary of all the virtues. Um, the father set up the casket scene in order to eliminate bad suitors. She goes along. Um, I mean, it's, that is, she has to learn to give up her will um, for the happiness that um, awaits her if she does. Um, if, if we look at it, 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 it seems to me that one of the things we have to say is the father was a virtuous man and a wise man, and he set it up for those ends. And she was good enough, obedient enough to follow him. Ophelia says she's being obedient to Polonius, to her father. What's the difference between these two regimes? Now, I'm going to end it here because we're out of time. But I want to leave you with this question. It seems to me that the two women in Denmark are, are weak women. They're not strong at all. They're very weak, both of them. Why? Ophelia is obedient to her father. So is Portia. What's the difference? And what's the difference between this northern regime? And you know that the Reformation had its strength centered in the northern regimes in Denmark and Sweden, Germany, and, and the southern Catholic regime. Remember, we've talked about the Renaissance. The Renaissance came out of Rome, Italy. It's these new communes, this new way of looking at man that produced these new regimes and all this art, this great outpouring of art. That took place in Italy, centered around Rome, in the struggles, and we read that was at the center of all that we did with Dante. It takes 200 years to get to England. It moves slowly across Europe, finally gets to England. Shakespeare is writing in the Renaissance in England. So he's aware of all of this, all of it. And clearly he's aware of the Reformation and the direction that it will take if, if, we, if we take Hamlet as a clue by everything he's doing here. It's a Reformation play. Hamlet comes from Wittenberg. He has a private revelation and we're watching the horrible effects of it. So my question here, it's not major, but it, it deals with something important in the play um, that has to do with the women. Why are the women both weak is that just a coincidence and we leave it at that? Is it related to the regime? Is there something going on here that can account for that? And what's the difference between Ophelia's obedience to Polonius and Portia's obedience to her father? Are those questions clear? I think they're good questions. They ultimately go to love and faith. I think uh, uh, women is a product of the environment. 
in the what lays behind the environment is cultural. So the culture uh, predisposes women and women's position. For example, in Islamic world, women has no rights, no power, nothing. Men rules in that environment. But in like Portia, probably because it's Catholic, Catholic Maria, uh, Mother Mary, uh, has a very strong foothold in Catholic culture. And that might have something to do with Portia being able to exert her power and position uh, in the environment she was placed versus Ophelia uh, in Denmark. Even though she is obedient to her father, maybe her father does not have that like Mary because Denmark didn't have a Catholic, wasn't a Catholic uh, country at that time. I don't know. This is just something no, that comes no, to this, mind. Yeah, no, those are all good thoughts, Kay. Let me leave it here because we're past time. I, I wanted to leave. I'd, I'd like to take these up. Um, we might even start with these questions. Just I don't want to take too much time. Next week, I'd like to do Acts 4 and 5. And I'd like to finally answer this question that I've been <laughs> beating you guys over the head with. Hamlet sets out on this quest to avenge his father's death. At the end, he will kill Claudius. My question is, is the spirit in which he kills Claudius at the end the same spirit in which he received the father's quest in the beginning? Or does something happen? You know, the, the Boethian principle is God is... Shakespeare knew that. Um, tragedies doesn't negate Boethius' truth. Because sometimes the cost of dealing with evil is death. People have to die. The question is, is, um, is good, is a tragedy answering an injustice and bringing justice, even if the cause of it is death? And will a good order come out of the deaths at the end of a tragedy? That's another question. I mean, it, we'll deal with that. But the, but the main question I've got is, God is at work always bringing good out of evil. Is God present in this play or not? Is the spirit in which Amlet kills Claudius at the end the same? Remember in that speech to his mother, he said that his father was like Jupiter and Mars and <clears throat> these great warrior gods. <clears throat> he was a brave man. Um, the the night I got the nineteen God these the ra even today the rationalist thinkers on Hamlet drive me nuts. They want to make Hamlet into something he's not. Hamlet is a very brave man. I mean, he does extraordinary. He's dealing with impossible, impossible problems. I mean, if you can wrap your head about what he's dealing with, I mean, and watch the way this, the, the outcome of this play, what Shakespeare does to bring this play to a resolution, it's extraordinary, you know, what this young man had to deal with. Anyway, let's take up the women question, and then I'd like to do Acts 4 and 5 and answer. Um, um, you know, this question that I put to you guys in the beginning. How do we look at the end? Is God involved in this or not? Is Hamlet just continuing the honor code of his father? 
Lori, tell Chuck he's he's going to have a quiz when he gets back. <laughs> um, Melanie, can you just stay for one minute afterwards, and I'm I'm going to say goodbye to everybody except if everybody can just sure. I'm going to have a minute with Melody just just for a, a brief minute. You guys all have a good week and enjoy Hamlet. I mean, this is an extraordinary play. Um, enjoy the end of it. It's a it's an amazing work. It's an amazing work. Michael, it was really good to see you again. Genuinely, really good to see you. Thank you, Bob. It's good to see you in health. Thanks. Thank you. I really appreciated your note. Thank you. Good night. Have see a good you. week. See you guys. Good night. Good night. Melody, I just have a quick... By the way, it's good to see you. Um, it's good to see you, too. Oh, sorry. Here, sorry. I got it done. I got it. I... Mm -hmm.